Well, go ahead and stand with me. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1, and we'll read verses 14 through 18. And then we'll pray and we'll, we'll dig into this text together this morning. I just want us to marvel at these words. I want us to marvel at these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, Who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I don't know that there is a greater mystery in Scripture than how Almighty God could take to himself human flesh. If we understand that, if we believe that, then the miracles of Christ make sense. The, the, the mighty works of Christ to raise the dead to life and to cast out demons and to make lepers clean and to make the blind to see, it makes sense. The resurrection makes sense. Lord, what a mystery it is that Almighty God could take to Himself human flesh, yet without sin, and become man, the God-man, the only God-man. Help us, Lord, to understand the mystery and the majesty of this. Help us to understand the glory and the wonder of this. Give us minds, Lord God, to to comprehend and to think about and to meditate upon this wonderful thing. Lord, help us as we engage with your word this morning to worship you and to be filled with awe and reverence and wonder as we ought. Lord, these are amazing words. They're not in the power of man to, to exposit. So I pray, Lord, that you would grant to me your Holy Spirit in fullness. I pray, Lord God, that you would fill me with the Spirit of God, that you would have just um, complete um, and total mastery over my tongue and over my thinking. That, Lord God, the words that I would speak would be the very words that you would have me speak and that you would empower them by your spirit and that they would be, that the words that I would speak would be fruitful to those who are hearing. And God, I pray that, that you would grant your spirit to everyone in this room, that, Lord, we would hear these words as we ought and that they would have the power in us that they should. Thank you that 
we are here this morning worshiping you and, Lord, submitting ourselves to your holy word. Please bless us as we worship you through the preaching of the word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'll tell you what, beloved, I can't think of another place that I would rather be on Christmas morning than in the household of God with the saints, with you all, worshiping and praising God for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the divine invasion, right, into our lost condition. I can't, I, I just don't, I couldn't, I don't know where else I would, I would rather be. As we, now, I was looking this week at, at what churches were saying why they weren't having worship service on Christmas morning. And the one that struck me the most, I I mean, I was speechless when I read this, was I actually heard a couple of well-known preachers, if I called your name, you would know, if I called their name, you would know them, who said, and, and who aren't, I mean, guys that, you know, we listen to, who said, well, you know what, having church on Christmas morning is not a salvation issue. Yeah. And I thought about that for a second. We're not having church on the Lord's Day on Christmas morning because it's not a salvation issue. And I thought to myself, what a curious way, what a curious way to live your life as a Christian or live your life as a church. Now, we'll do it. We'll do whatever it is, you know, if it's a salvation issue. We'll be obedient to God if it's a salvation issue. But if it's not a salvation issue, then, well... We got some leeway. See, the problem with that is that's a very slippery slope, isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, if you miss a day of worship, you're not going to lose your salvation. It's not a salvation issue. You're right. But what if you miss a thousand? What if you miss 10? What if you miss 25? What does that tell about your heart in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ? Right? That is a really curious way to live. I would rather, they said... We just decided not to have church this week because it's not all that important to us. I don't understand that concept, that it's not a salvation issue, that it's not that big of a deal. But I think I know why it's that way. Why don't you think about this with me for just a moment? The incarnation of the word who is God has become almost an afterthought, hasn't it, when it comes to Christmas? It's become almost an afterthought in modern Christianity. It doesn't bring forth from people the the, the amazement that it should. And I think one of the reasons that that's so is because most professing Christians spend very little time, very little time, Reflecting and meditating on the incarnation. We're so busy. We're so distracted. We've got so much stuff that we've got to do, you know? There's just, I have, I'm on the search for the perfect gift, you know? I gotta find the perfect gift. We, we put all these layers of things on top of the truth of the incarnation of Christ. And so we just don't think about it. We, we fail to consider the mystery and the wonder of it all. We rarely consider the magnitude of the word becoming flesh as we should. I mean, listen, no church would consider, hey, we're going to cancel church on Resurrection Sunday. Would they? 
Would they? I mean, that would be like, what are you, stupid, right? But we can do it on Christmas, why? I mean, I realize, you know, some people say, well, it's not the actual date that Jesus was born. So, it's the date in which we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, right? It's because it doesn't hold for us the wonder and the mystery that, say, the resurrection does. But when John wrote these words, beloved, when John wrote these words of his prologue in the Gospel of John, he meant for us to be amazed. He meant for us to to read these words and be be astonished. He meant for us to read this and be in awe of the Word becoming flesh. He, He wanted us, he wants us to come to this certain, this unwavering certainty based in truth that the Word of God indeed became flesh and that Everything that we need for life and salvation is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and is freely offered to us in Him alone, right? Like when we read these words, okay? When we read these words of the prologue, we are to be astonished. We are to, we are to realize these are profound words. These are awe-inspiring, thought-provoking words. And for those who know Christ as Savior and Lord, these are the very words of life, aren't they? This inbreaking. This inbreaking of God the Son into our rebellious and wretched sinfulness, that He would become one of us, that He would dwell with us, and that He would do all that He did to save us. That's the most important thing that's ever happened in human history, isn't it? The Word becoming, you know, flesh to pierce the darkness for the salvation of sinners. It is an act of incomprehensible divine love. Of, of astonishing divine humility, of, of infinite condescension. It's not easy for our finite minds to, to fully grasp. But, beloved, we need to try. We need to try. Like, we don't, you know, sometimes people will approach things in Scripture and they don't really meditate on it because it just seems so hard, you know. And because it's so hard, we're just not even going to try. We never would accept that from our kids, would we? I'm not going to play baseball. It's, I'm not even going to try. It's too hard. Yes, you are. Get out on the field. I don't care if the ball hits you 75 times when you're trying to field grounders. Get out there. Right? We would never accept that. We need to really think about this. The wonder of what John says to us. And I just want to point something out before we dig in verses 14 through 18. The progression in this prologue is really purposeful. And I'm glad we read all the verses this morning because I don't want us to miss the progression here, right? Think about what's been going on. John begins in verses 1 through 5 by describing the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ from an eternal perspective, right? From an eternal perspective. He describes Him as the Word. The Word who has always been. The Word who was before the beginning. The one who has always been in perfect communion with God the Father, enjoying perfect fellowship and satisfaction, a relationship of perfect love and divine joy, the creator of everything, right? Including us. He's the source of everything that can be rightly called life and light. He's the light that shines triumphantly in the darkness. He cannot be quenched. And from the very beginning, what John wants us to see is that Christ coming into this world to save the lost was not because of some 
emptiness that was in him. It wasn't because there was something missing in the fullness of the word of God or in the relationship of the word to the father. It was all because of our desperate need, right? All because of our desperate need. Nothing in him. He doesn't come into this world because he needs us. He comes into this world because we need him, right? Then in verses 6 through 13, John describes, you know, the incarnation and the redeeming work of Christ in time, right? How God sent John the Baptist, the herald and the witness of the Lord, how, how he came to, to proclaim his coming. And yet when Christ came into the world, the very people whom he made did not know him. The very people for whom he provides breath and a heartbeat and food and everything needful for life did not recognize him, did not receive him. His own people, Israel, rejected him. The blindness, the corruption of the human race as the result of the fall is so profound. I want you to think about this now. It's so profound, our our blindness. The sinful ignorance is so great that unless God intervene, unless God do something, every single soul would remain in spiritual darkness and would fail to recognize the glory and the wonder and the saving personhood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? Every one of us. We would be under the guilt of sin and under the eternal wrath of God and nobody would ever be rescued. But God did do something, right? John tells us in verse, verses 12 and 13, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, Christ, gave the right to become the children of God who were born, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. In other words, in the midst of the spiritual darkness, there are some who did and who will and, and believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, who are delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought in the family of God. And they only do so because of the regenerating power of Almighty God. Man, that's awesome. Because God, because God intervened, the power of God to raise a dead soul to life, the power of God to transform a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, the power of God to open sin-blinded eyes and behold the light that is in Christ. That's necessary before we'll ever see and believe in Jesus. And now in these verses, John presents to us the view of Christ's incarnation, the meaning of his divine invasion into this sin-darkened world from the perspective of those who have been born of God. What do we see when we look at Jesus? Man, when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we behold? What is our understanding of who he is? What should we see? What do we see, beloved, when we behold the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what John's going to show us here, right? He's going to start. This is so cool is what he does. He gives us this one, this one definitive statement of, of mystery and of majesty. And then he gives us sort of like three applications that come out of it. He gives us this one statement first, this definitive statement in verse 14 that is remarkable, right? And then he just kind of gives us some things that come out of that reality. Look again at verse 14 with me. John writes, 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now that's four phrases, right? Four phrases that are remarkable. That if we really think about them, and and listen to me, if we think about them as if we haven't heard them a million times in our lifetime, if we really think about it sort of phrase by phrase, this is one of the most beautiful and profound sentences ever written. John lays out some remarkable truths that are filled with mystery and with majesty and with glory. Right? It's remarkable. Look at what he says. I just want to take this a phrase at a time, right? He begins by saying, first of all, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Now, as we've seen below, that's a mouthful. The word who was with God, the word who is himself God, God, the eternal son, took to himself human nature. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and he became man. He took to himself human flesh. Now that's, that's simply stated, right? That's a simple statement. But it is anything but simple. I want you to think about the magnitude of this. I mean, we really need to think about the magnitude of God becoming flesh, right? I want you to think about this with me. The infinite, okay? The unbounded. The infinite, the unbounded took to himself a finite body. The one who is invisible became tangible. The transcendent one became imminent. He who was far off drew near. Now, that is no doubt one of the great mysteries of our faith. Right? What, what, what's a mystery? Well, we know what a mystery is in theology. It's, it's a divine reality that we confess as being true without knowing exactly how it can be possible, right? It's a truth that is humanly undiscoverable, that has to be revealed to us, and that we have to receive by faith. For instance, listen, we know the incarnation is true. Why do we know it? Well, because God said so. Right? We know the incarnation is true. We see the evidence of the incarnation. But understanding the incarnation is truly beyond the reach of our finite minds, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, I want you to think about this. We know a little bit about what happens when a baby is formed in a womb, right? From science, from biology, from, you know, scientific investigation. We know something of what happens in the womb when a pregnancy starts, right? But when we try to comprehend what was involved with the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and a divine human embryo began to grow in her. Beloved, we're out of our league. I mean, we're out of our depth. And yet that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. In a mysterious way. In his, in his conception and incarnation, The words, deity, his godness, though it was veiled, was never laid aside, right? It was never laid aside. He couldn't cease to be God, right? 
He couldn't cease to be God. But what he did do was add to his deity humanity. Forever. Forever. He became flesh, not just in a moment, and for a moment, and for 33 years, and then get to shed this this body of, of flesh. He, the Word, the Eternal Son, the second member of the Trinity, took to Himself human flesh, glorified now, but took to Himself human flesh forever. Forever. His humanity, though sinless, was real humanity. He wasn't Superman, you know. It wasn't like his humanity was, you know, somehow different than ours. He was sinless. He's just like us, other than our sin. It was real humanity. In a moment in time, the Word who is God became flesh and from that moment on possesses two distinct natures, one divine and one human. 100% God, 100% man, without any mingling or confusion between those two natures. How can that be? I don't know. I don't know. But it was necessary. Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. When John says, when he uses that word became, when when that word became, John affirms that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh, I want you to see this, was not the beginning of his existence, but it was the beginning of a new form of existence. The Word became what He was not previously. He didn't cease to be God, but He became man. In fact, it's another reason. Les and I were talking about this the other day in my office. It's another reason that John uses the term Word to describe the pre-incarnate Christ. There's a reason he doesn't call Him Jesus. There's a reason he doesn't call Him Christ. There's a reason he calls Him the Word of God. And here's why. J.C. Ryle puts it perfectly. He says, It certainly would not have been accurately correct to say that Jesus was made flesh. Because the name Jesus was not given to our Lord until after His incarnation. Nor yet, he says, would it have been correct to say in the beginning was the Christ. Because the name Christ belongs to His mission after the fall of man. No, He's the Word. And at His incarnation, the eternal Word stepped down from heaven to take on the limitations of our flesh and become Jesus of Nazareth. He willingly set aside the glories and the perfections of heaven, the perpetual... Think about this now. The perpetual worship and honor that He enjoyed from angelic beings. He laid that aside and he took to himself our human flesh, laying aside his rights as God to come to this earth steeped in sin and self-centered wickedness. And from his conception, listen, he was confined to Mary's womb until the time came for him to be delivered. 
That is mind-blowing. He took on himself the limitations of time and space. He became a man so that he could bring us redemption through the gruesome death of the cross. Why did the word of God become flesh? It was so he could die. Ultimately, And that's the import of God becoming man, of of the eternal putting on flesh. It's a mystery that transcends our ability to fully understand, but it is true. Even John the Baptist testified to the wonder of it all, even though he may not have understood the fullness of what he was saying when when John records in verse 15. He says, John bore witness, John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He was before John in eternity. He's before John in glory. He infinitely ranks above John, who himself was the product of a miraculous conception. Was he not? He's far above me. The Word became flesh. And I want you to think about now. I, you've got to think about the divine humility of the Lord Jesus Christ to do this, really. From that miraculous moment, right? I said this earlier. From that miraculous moment when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he will never cease to be human. He is forever both God and man in one person. He who filled the heavens, listen, didn't despise being formed in Mary's womb. He didn't balk at becoming a servant and being born in the likeness of men. being made like his creatures. Think about this. When, when in the Pactum Salutis, the Father demanded of the Son that he take on human flesh in order to redeem his church. I want you to think about it. He did not say to the Father, let me appear as I did to Isaiah in the temple. Let me go and be high and lifted up. He didn't say, you know, Let me go with thunder and lightning as I did at Sinai. Let me, you know, go and and, and present myself as a mighty warrior like I did to Joshua before the battle of Jericho. The word was manifested. God the Son was revealed in the body of a baby. I love what J.I. Packer says because he just says it like, like he just says this so rawly. Listen to what he says. Like, I don't know anybody else that said this like this. He said, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The God of eternity became an infant in time. He's the God infant who became the God man. In a real body, think about this. He learned and read the scriptures. It's not like he was born with an encyclopedic understanding of the word of God in his mind. He read and understood the scriptures. He prayed. He worshipped. He learned to trade. He learned to trade. He worked and he walked. He spoke and he acted. He became weary and thirsty and hungry. In a real body, he felt all the emotions common to all men. 
He felt love and joy and gladness and thankfulness. He felt sorrow and disappointment and heaviness and grief. Every day he served his father in a real body that was, that had all the frailties of the fall in it. Think about that. Yet without sin. Listen, when Jesus came into the world, he did not, he did not come with a human body like that of Adam's before sin entered it. A body that wasn't subject to sickness or to pain or to death. He came in a body like our own, yet without sin. He loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. And he served him with his arms and his hands, with his legs and his feet. He presented himself as a living sacrifice to the Father, going about doing good, preaching the word of God, healing the infirm, delivering people from demonic possession, raising the dead in a real body. He faced Satan and temptation. He faced the opposition of sinners. He, he, he faced the demands of his mission on this earth and overcame in every situation by his trust in Father God and his dependence upon his holy word. He manifested the character of God, the love, the grace, the mercy, the judgment, the holiness, all of it in a real body as a real Man, the word came, he invaded our situation without our invitation, without our preparation, without our decision, without our welcome. He was sent by the Father, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was born of Mary, and all of this took place without anyone consulting us at all. Without our help. God the word became God, the God-man. He took to himself human flesh. And for a rescue, it had to be that way. The union, the union of those two natures, human and divine, in Christ was necessary to make him fit for the office of mediator and redeemer. It had to be that way. Listen, our mediator is someone who can sympathize with us. Why? Because he was really man. He's really man. And at the same time, he's one who can deal with God the Father for us. Why? Because he's God. He became a man, the God-man. And for us, in our place, he lived that life of spotless perfection and perfect sinlessness, absolute righteousness. And then he endured the punishment of our sin and he took the wrath of God upon himself. He paid the full measure of our judgment that God's justice demands so that we could be saved through faith in him alone. Right? And it's all because of those two natures and one person that that mediation was successful. That's it. He represents us both, right? Paul said, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Christ is fully God. He's fully man. Two natures, one person. And it's got to be that way because the... Only somebody who's God could do anything to save us, and only someone who's truly man is qualified to be the substitute and the sacrifice for human sinners. That's it. And you know what? It's that union that gives infinite value to his righteousness when it's imputed to us as believers, because it's the righteousness of one who's God as well as man. It's that same union that gives infinite value to the atoning blood that he shed for sinners on the cross. It's the blood of God as well as man. It's the same union that gives infinite value to his resurrection because when Christ rose again, he didn't just rise as God. He rose as the head of the body of believers. He rose as the God-man, the first fruits of his people, guaranteeing thereby our resurrection. It's all because 
The word became flesh. Man, let this sink into our hearts. Let's do more than just think about a baby in a manger. Christ is the second Adam. He's the greater Adam. Come to save the hellbound man and woman. The second Adam, listen, is far greater than the first Adam was. Here's the why. The first Adam was only man, and so he fell. He fell. The second Adam was God as well as man. And so he completely conquered. And when you really think about that, it is remarkable, right? It is remarkable. You know, you read through Scripture, right? You survey the Old Testament, and you see the hint of the God-man everywhere. You do. You see the, you see the hint of the God-man everywhere. That when you read the Old Testament... You know, when you, this union of the divine and the human nature in Christ, it was plainly foreshadowed in the Old Testament prophecies. Prophecies about Christ sometimes represented the coming Messiah as, as, as a human and sometimes as divine, right? In fact, just listen to this. You know, he was to be, he, is, he was to be what? The woman's offspring or her seed, right? In the Proto-Evangelium. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, right? He was to be a prophet like Moses, right? Speaking of Christ, God said to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's Deuteronomy 18.18. He was to be a descendant in the line of David, right? To David, God said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. Isaiah 11.10 speaks of the root of Jesse. Isaiah 42 of God's servant. Isaiah 53 of the man of sorrows, right? All designations of a man, right? But on the other hand, Scripture says in Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 2, It describes the coming Messiah as the branch of the Lord who shall be beautiful and glorious. He was wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, right? We read that at the beginning. As God, he was to come suddenly into his temple. Malachi writes, the the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The one who is to be born in Bethlehem and to be ruler in Israel was the one who's coming forth, Micah chapter 5 verse 2, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So you've got this description of this Messiah that is man, but this Messiah that is also divine. How can those two sets of prophecies be harmonized in one person? John chapter 1, verse 14 is the only answer, isn't it? The Word became flesh. That's how. The Word became flesh. And then John says, He dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. He didn't just come for a weekend. He didn't just hang out, you know, for a couple of days. He came and He dwelt among us. He dwelt with us. Literally what John says here is, he tabernacled among us. John uses that word deliberately. He uses a word, he could have used another word, 
If all he wanted to say is just that he came and, you know, lived with us for a while, he could have used a different word, but he doesn't. He uses the word here that makes us think immediately of, of, of the tabernacle. Because he tabernacled with us. It makes us think of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, right? The dwelling place of God with his people in the Old Testament. And John, that's exactly what John wants us to do. When he says, yeah, he, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He wants us to go tabernacle. Oh, I know what the tabernacle's about. I have some ideas about the tabernacle. And when you start thinking about the tabernacle, you see these parallels between Christ and the tabernacle that are unmistakable, right? I mean, I want you to think about this with me now. This is so amazing, right? The tabernacle was the foreshadowing, wasn't it, of the Son of God coming in the flesh. Well, how so? Well, in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. Outwardly, what do we know about the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle outwardly was kind of humble. It was unattractive in appearance, wasn't it? Wasn't it? We're not talking about Solomon's temple here, okay? We're talking about the tabernacle. The tabernacle from the outside looked like a bunch of board and wo- boards and wood, or uh, boards and skins. That's what it looked like. It looked like a bunch of boards and skins. In fact, it didn't look like the cool ziggurats or the, or the, or the pyramids or the temple of Athena. On the outside, it just kind of looked like Boards and skins, nothing amazing. And it was the same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ. We've all seen the pictures of Anglo Jesus, right? With the, you know, windblown hair and the blue eyes and the aquiline nose and all that, right? We've all seen that. You look at it, oh, what a beautiful... He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That's what Isaiah said. There was nothing beautiful about Jesus. He wasn't like, oh, he's, he's a dreamboat. It wasn't that way. There's no aura around him. You know, there's no like halo that you could barely faintly see over. There's no glory in his appearance. tabernacle yet you know it's the same with the tabernacle tabernacle though was god's dwelling place wasn't it wasn't it it's where god dwelt with his people and for 33 years that the word tabernacled among men god had his dwelling place in palestine in the fleshly tent of jesus body right there god dwelt in our midst the tabernacle was the place where god met with men right it was the tent of meeting likewise the lord jesus christ is the meeting place between god and men nobody comes to the father except by him the tabernacle was the place, remember, where the table of the law was kept. The tables, the tablets of the law was there. They were kept there. They were preserved there in the Ark of the Covenant, right? Likewise, it's in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone that all the law is fully kept, isn't it? Isn't it? Throughout His perfect life, He kept and preserved in thought, word, and deed the divine commandments, thereby honoring and magnifying God's law. The tabernacle was the place where sacrifice was made, right? And so 
It was with the Lord Jesus Christ in the tabernacle of his body. Our Lord Jesus Christ provided the ultimate sacrifice on Calvary's cross, didn't he? His precious blood was shed. The complete atonement was made for sin. The tabernacle was the place of worship, wasn't it? That's where, you know, the people went to worship. And so it is with the Lord Jesus. It's in Him and by Him alone that we can worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Isn't that true? Through the Lord Jesus Christ alone can genuine worship be offered to God. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, Through Him, through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Hebrews verses, chapter 13, verse 15. All worship and praise, all thanksgiving can only, only come to God through the mediator who is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Not only that, the tabernacle was the great gathering center of Israel's camp, wasn't it? It was the center of it all, and they camped around it. Likewise, listen, same thing is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him that we, the people of God, find our gathering place. He is the ground of our unity and our life together. John doesn't want you to just run by and he dwelt among us and move on to the next phrase. He wants you to think. We need to think about what that means, right? And be amazed. In Jesus, God has tabernacled with us. And the message of the tabernacle was clear. It wasn't the structure that drew attention. It was the glory that rested upon it and in it. Wasn't it? Wasn't it? It was the kind of glory of God himself. Right? When the Spirit of God showed up at the tabernacle, what did the people of Israel do? What did they do? They went to their homes and they worshipped. God was in the house. And so they worship. And it's in light of the fact that that glory is on the inside that John says what he does next. He says, and we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father. What's he saying here? Well, here's what John's saying. He said what captured his attention was not the tabernacle of flesh. It wasn't Christ's physical human body. What captured John's attention was the glory that he saw on the inside. It was the glory of the only son of the father, the glory of the monogenes, the, the unique son of God, the only begotten son of God, the unique one. There was his glory as the unique son of the Father. John's saying that God's glory has been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and he, in this one who is the, the one and the only one who could express the glory of God because he was with God at the beginning. It is himself God, right? As, as, as the writer of Hebrews says, he's the radiance of the glory of God. So what does John mean when he says that we have seen his glory? Well, that word that's translated here as, as have seen is a word that means, man, we, we examined him. We looked at him attentively. We scrutinized him. We, we examined him thoroughly and contemplated upon everything that we saw. And the conclusion that we came to when we really examined him was glory. This is glory in human flesh. God's glory made known. 
And it's true, isn't it, that from beginning to end of his earthly life in his ministry, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ was plainly evidenced, right? In his supernatural birth, his personal excellencies, his matchless teaching, his wondrous miracles, his death, his resurrection, it all proclaimed the glory of the Son of God, right? But how was it, how was it that John, how was it that John and, and the other apostles and the other disciples looked upon Christ and saw glory when so many did not? How did they look at him and go, oh, glory of God is in him. How did they see all that? Well, they saw it because they were given eyes of faith to see it. Isn't that true? The glory of Christ, listen to me, you only behold it by faith. The reason people are bored with Christ is because they don't have eyes to see. The reason people are not amazed by Jesus is because they only have, they don't have eyes to see. The reason that people think of Jesus as some radical revolutionary or some, you know, teacher that did his best but got himself killed or some milk toasty wimpy kind of guy who just said nice, you know, platitudes is because they have no eyes to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Plenty of people saw Jesus perform miracles. Some even received them. Plenty of people, you know, saw him teach with power. But they didn't see in him anything glorious or magnificent. They rejected him, in fact. They sought to kill him. Even today, there are legions of people who see no glory in Christ at all, but are supremely impressed by lesser glories that are nothing. No, we need to see is that the revealed glory of the Son of God, the glory of the Word made flesh, the glory of the unique Son from the Father is a spiritual glory. It is a supernaturally perceived glory. It's not something that you can see with physical eyes, but only with the eyes of faith. Regenerated, made spiritually alive from spiritual death by God's grace to behold Christ as He is. You know what we see? We see the divine glory of God revealed powerfully and truly. When by God's grace, you come to know what Jesus is like, then you know what God is like. You see the glory of God. And John says that what you will find is one who is full of grace and truth. Someone who is full of grace and truth. Think about this. Look, here's what John is saying. This is wonderful. That God has become flesh. He's lived with us. We beheld him. And in seeing him, we beheld the glory of God revealed. Instead of being consumed, you know, with the brightness of his glory. And in him, we have seen the one who is full of divine grace and truth. In fact, John's saying, you know, you know, the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ is demonstrated in the fact that he's full of grace without negating or setting aside or compromising the truth of God. Well, think about this, wonder at this. God could have come to us in the flesh, right? He could have come to us in the flesh in, in, as a, as a judge, as an executioner of the sinful and the rebellious and by rights, All of us would have been destroyed and sentenced to eternal judgment. Isn't that true? 
Isn't that true? Would have, would it have diminished his godhood in the least? No. But the word didn't become flesh in that way. He didn't become flesh in that way. Instead, he came demonstrating a glory that is full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelled among us so that he might be gracious to us who deserved judgment and to do it by upholding divine truth. God's grace to us is not, God's grace to us in his his son is not empty, sentimental, weak, or capricious grace. It's not. The grace that Christ brought to us is a God-magnifying, holiness-upholding, truth-preserving, expensive grace that's rooted in the truth. Here's the truth. Look, the Word of God comes to us in the flesh, and He says, in essence, this. Here's the truth about you. Here's the truth about you. Because you're a sinner, you have not and you cannot keep the law of God from the heart. You have refused to obey God's righteous commands. But in grace... I will do it for you. I'll do it as your representative before the Father. I'll live a life of perfect obedience on your behalf so you can be counted as righteous before God. Here's the truth. Because of your sin, you're under the condemnation of God and you deserve death and an eternity in hell. But in grace, I will bear the penalty of your sins in my body on the cross. I will suffer hell and death on your behalf. I will endure the wrath of God for you so that your guilt can be forgiven. He came, he came full of grace and truth. When Jesus died, the ultimate truth of God's glory and holiness was upheld, right? Because our sin was punished. And when Christ died, God was gracious to us because Jesus bore the punishment for us and we did not. In this, the glory of God is shown in that he's full of grace without negating or setting aside or compromising the truth of God at all. You know, that's a wondrous and 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 miraculous thing, isn't it? To behold the glory of God revealed in Christ. Do you remember the first time it happened to you? Do you remember the first time that Jesus Christ went from just being a name or a person that you really didn't know a whole lot about or maybe you knew some facts about or maybe you knew the Christmas story? The moment when Christ went from being just somebody to being the glory of God full of grace and truth before your own eyes. Do you remember what it was like? Man, I do. I remember having my eyes open at a moment when I least expected it. When I was sitting in church, kind of goofing around, not paying attention. And the word of God came home to me in such a way as I'll never forget. And in that moment, a couple of things happened. First, I was brought to a striking realization of my own sinfulness. My own unworthiness, of of my own impurity and my depravity. But at the same time, my heart, my heart was opened to see Christ's holiness and his worth and his beauty and his majesty. And it was then that the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel became to me hope and joy and life. 
And it was then that Christ went from being just somebody that I knew something about to being someone who knew me. And now, praise God, I know. When that happens, right, when, when the truth, look at verse 14 again. When the truth of these words, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When those words become reality to you, everything changes. You see, that in Christ is the fountain of grace upon grace. Like when you see him in verse 14, you're like, yes, he's these things too, right? That he is the fountain of grace upon grace. Look at how John says it in verse 16. He says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. He's saying, listen, man, he goes, here's the truth. From this one in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, from him in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, from him we have received, we keep receiving grace upon grace upon grace. In him is this never-ending fountain that, that from which comes the abundant supply of grace to our souls that can never be exhausted, that can never be diminished, and no matter how much it seems he lavishes upon us, there's always more in reserve. Always more than we can imagine. This grace flows to us, he says. The idea is he flows to us in this limitless, never-ending flow. Think about it. Well, when we come to see Christ as he is, we come to realize that all the blessings of justifying and pardoning grace and adopting grace and sanctifying grace and preserving grace, right? All the promises of grace... The, the granting of the Holy Spirit, the illuminating of the, of the Word of God to our minds, the, the call to spiritual ministry, the joyous celebration of being a part of the redeemed assembly and enjoying the rich communion of the saints, the strength and comfort, endurance and peace and joy that He gives, the, the, the grace that enables us to look at this world as jacked up as it is, to look at this world and see God's purpose in it as the handiwork of the God whom we love and we desire to see glorified and magnified above everybody else. Right? The assurance that God loves us in a personal way as his own chosen possession and will work everything together for good in our lives. All of it comes in and through and from Christ in this ceaseless flow of favor from God through him. It's a fountain. It is boundless supply of all that any sinner could ever need, either in time or in eternity. He is rich in mercy, rich in grace, rich in wisdom, rich in righteousness, rich in redemption, right? Out of, out of Christ's fullness, believers in every age have continued to be richly supplied, right? All because the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glories of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. All our needs are richly supplied and all because Christ is greater than Moses the servant. Christ the son is greater than Moses the servant. Look at what John says next in verse 17, right? Like he's just like laying some stuff out. Here's the truth of verse 14. Here's what I was thinking about, you know, the fact that all uh, every everything we need, a fountain of grace is open in Christ. Here's something else about him. 
um, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what's John getting at there? Here's what he's getting at. It's what the writer of Hebrews described in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. When he was describing the greatness of Christ, how he's greater than Moses, he said this. He said, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. He was a good servant. He was a faithful servant. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Here's what John is saying. Look, Moses was great. Moses was great. Everybody loves Moses. We look back on Moses with great fondness. We look back on Moses being a faithful servant of the living God because he gave us the law, right? The moral law that he brought down from Mount Sinai that's holy and it's just and it's good. But you know this and I know this. The law could never justify us. It had no healing power. It only pronounced a curse against our disobedience. But Christ, on the other hand, came into the world as a son, holding in his hands the keys of grace and truth. When John says grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't mean that, 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 that grace and truth, you know, were not instrumental in the salvation of the Old Testament saints or that, you know, there was no grace in, 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 in the Old Testament. Of course there was. But what he means is this, is that grace and truth find their zenith. They find their apex. They find their full revelation, their full embodiment in the Lord Jesus Christ that like we talked about earlier, right? In fact, Charles Spurgeon comments on this conjunction of grace and truth in the Lord Jesus Christ by saying these words. This is so good. Listen to what he says. He says, the grace of Christ is truthful grace. Grace not in fiction nor in fancy. Grace not to be hoped for and to be dreamed of, but grace every atom of which is fact. Redemption, which actually redeems. Pardon, which does blot out sin. Renewal, which actually regenerates. Salvation, which completely saves. The Lord has come to bring us a truthful grace. But he's also come to bring us gracious truth. It's not the kind of truth that censures and condemns and punishes. It's gracious truth. Truth steeped in love. Truth saturated with mercy. The truth which Jesus brings to his people comes not from the judgment seat, but from the mercy seat. Amen. In fact, the heart of the matter is this. Verse 18. Christ alone reveals the fullness of God to man. Look what he says, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John says, look, the eye of mortal man has never beheld God the Father. No, no man could bear that sight, right? Even to Moses, such a great servant, it was said, you cannot see my face, for there shall no man, for, for, for there, for, therefore no man shall see me and live. 
No one's seen the fullness of God in his unmitigated glory. In fact, those in Scripture who had a vision of God either saw Christ in his pre-incarnate glory or they had an obscure vision of the glory of God around his throne. And yet everything that mortal man is capable of knowing about God the Father has been fully revealed to us by God the Son. John's saying, no man has ever seen God, but now the character and the person of God has been revealed because the Son has shown us God. In fact, the word that's, that's translated here as made him known is, is the same word in Greek that means to exegete, right? To exegete a passage of Scripture, to explain it. And the idea here is that Christ explains God to us. He has exegeted the Father to us, right? This one who is in the bosom of the Father, that's the actual, you know, the, 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 the literal translation of at the Father's side. This one who's in the bosom of the Father from all of eternity has been pleased to take our nature upon him and to exhibit to us in the flesh all that our minds can comprehend of the Father's perfection. In his words, in his deeds, in his life and in his death, we learn as much concerning the God the Father as our feeble minds can at present bear. Right? His perfect wisdom, his almighty power, his unspeakable love to sinners, his incomprehensible holiness, his hatred of sin. God is made known to us, represented to our eyes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the God whom, the, whom Jesus reveals is our Abba Father and the great I Am. And the holy, righteous, and awesome God. The God that we can know. The God we must trust. The God who draws us so that we might draw near to Him. And yet the big question that lies behind all of this, right, is why would the Word become flesh? Like what's the motivation, Right? And Charles Spurgeon says it about as well as it can possibly be said. He said the motive is love. Love which could have no self-interest to be an alloy. It couldn't have been, you know, diminished. A love that can't be diminished by self-interest. A love to those who could never repay him. A love to rebels. Love to men who actually crucified the Lord of glory. What John wants us to see is this. Beloved, eternal life is found in a person. One person. And that person is Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God. Eternal life personified. The word become flesh. God become man. The incarnate Lord. Christianity, beloved, it's not, not essentially a system of thought. It's not a system of doctrines by itself. It's not, you know, some improved way of living. It's not, you know, Christianity is not the sort of the, you know, the, the, the southern way of doing things. Some of the least Christian people I know were raised in southern churches. Just say it. It's not that. It's not essentially a system of thought. It's a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the main foundation of Christianity, John says, is not speculations of men about God. Man, you know what? Here's the thing that gets me. I'll give you an example. Jordan Peterson, everybody seems to love Jordan Peterson. I wish Jordan Peterson would shut his mouth. Let me tell you why. Jordan Peterson is an unsaved man. An unsaved man that is attempting to exegete the word of God. Going through, went through Genesis, now he's going through Exodus. He's drawn all these thinkers and philosophers together. And if you listen to it and you hear them, like I had to stop. I, I just went, I was curious. I listened to a little bit of it. I stopped because what it ended up being was their thoughts about God and not what the text taught. The most dangerous thing in the world is somebody who thinks they're smart, that's, that aren't, isn't called by God, isn't saved, and who tries to exegete the word of God. That's a dangerous thing, man. That's how we end up with cults. The main foundation of Christianity is not the speculations of men, fallen men about God. It's rather that God has chosen to reveal himself to us chiefly in one way. The word of God became flesh and dwelled among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Period. Why is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ important? Here's why. Because without the incarnation, there would have been no God-man, right? And without the God-man, there would have been no reconciliation with God. And there would have been no revelation of redemption and salvation and deliverance because there would have been no redemption to reveal. And no path to reconciliation to God because we were powerless to span the chasm between holy God and sinful mankind, right? The word becoming flesh was absolutely necessary to God's plan of salvation and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, his works, the fullness of grace and truth in him is the central glory of the gospel. All grace and truth is found in him and in vain do we find it anywhere else. The Christmas message is not. Let's all try a lot harder and do a little better and be nicer to one another for a few days. It's not. The spirit of Christmas. Depending on who you talk to, it's a variety of different things. The Christmas message is not, you know, some baby was born sometime a long time ago and so we have this holiday and it's a nice time when we get together with friends and family and we drink hot chocolate and we and we eat nice foods that we wouldn't eat any other time and sweet little things and whatever and we gain 20 pounds so we can, you know, get fat for our New Year's resolution to lose weight. I mean, you know, that's what I'm doing. I'm porking up so that when January 1st gets here, I can be like, time to go on a diet. Yeah, right? No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. The Christmas message is this. There's hope. There's hope for a ruined and a sinful humanity. There's hope of forgiveness. There is hope of peace with God. There is hope of redemption and and adoption into the family of God. There is a hope. There's a hope of glory. Because of the Father's will, And out of his own heart of love, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. He was 
born in a stable so that some 33 years later he could hang on a cross for our trespasses and then rise on the third day from the dead, guaranteeing our justification. There's hope because of one God-man. And it's the most magnificent message that the world has ever heard or will ever hear. It's not meant to be encrusted and layered over and fossilized by all the imaginary meanings of Christmas. One last word from Spurgeon. I'll close with him. Says the plain truth of God that God was made flesh and dwelt among us is God's great battering ram against which nothing can stand. Never lose heart in the gospel, my brothers and sisters, but think you hear the apostle calling across the ages, great is the mystery of godliness. Look for nothing greater. The gospel's great enough. Hold fast that which you have received. Attempt not to mend the truth. Venture not to shape it according to the fancy of the times. But proclaim it in all of its native purity. By this hammer, the gods of Rome and Greece were dashed to shivers. By this lever, the world was turned upside down. It is this gospel which has brought glory to God, filled heaven with redeemed souls, and made hell to tremble in all its palaces of flame. Bind it about your heart. This simple truth of God, that Jesus Christ has come to seek and save that which was lost, and that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, must be your jewels, your treasure, and your life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray. I pray that as we who are in this room consider the glorious truth that John has written, that Lord God, you have unfolded to us this morning, this truth regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, in whom we beheld the glory of the only one from the Father who is full of grace and truth, the one from whom we receive grace upon grace, the one who alone can, can explain and exegete you, Almighty God, to our understanding as much as we can understand. Lord, as we hear these words, I pray that we would be amazed I pray that we would be in awe, and I pray, Lord God, that we would worship. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Lord God, I praise you and thank you for them who have chosen this day to worship. To worship, Lord God, in spite of the immense pressure not to. <laughs> who have chosen, Lord, to, to celebrate and glorify and magnify the coming of Christ by actually worshiping Christ.
And I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would richly, Father God, um, give grace to them. I pray that, Father God, you would richly repay their desire to come and to worship you with glad joy and with thanksgiving and with, with abundant peace and with great satisfaction. I pray, Lord God, as we meditate on these words today, they would stir us in our hearts, Lord, to love you and to honor you and to worship you and to lay down our lives for you. Lord God, to just be amazed and in awe, amazed and in awe, that the word actually really became flesh. And all that that means, the great love, the great humility, the determination to rescue and save, the willingness to endure opposition and suffering and death to bring life to us. May we be in awe, amazed, in wonder. May you receive from us, Lord, the devotion that you deserve. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.